Good morning. morning. Let's do this. Matthew chapter 2, please. We'll be in verses 13 through 23. Matthew 2, 13 through 23. So if you're New Year, we're going through a new book in the Bible. We're going through the book of Matthew together. Uh, We started at Christmas because Matthew begins his book with the Christmas narrative, which we're still kind of closing up here this morning. What would compel a human being to write a biography about somebody else? I mean, what, what kind of life has to be lived in order for someone to say, you know, I'm going to give a good portion of my time and, and money and effort to, to write down, research, do all the things that are required to write down a, a biography of a human being. And I want it to become accurate and, and truthful what, what would require, what, what, what's going on in the heart of a man that would do this? Um, so, so I've written two books, one, neither of which are really great at all, uh, but, but one was really terrible. It's called The Relationship Between, Adolescent, uh, between uh, Egocentrism and I Can't Remember in Higher Adolescence. There's some other thing that I, that I wrote about. I have, like, it took, it sucked four years out of my life to write that, that book. And I finished it out of pure will and determination just to make sure, like, just because somebody paid for me to go to school. You know, like, I did it out of guilt and obligation more than I did it out of desire. Just, I'm going to finish, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to finish, right? And I got it done, and nobody's ever read it except the readers in my, in my doctoral program. Nobody, not even my wife, has read that book. Um, <laughs> At all. What would compel somebody to write a, write, write, write a book, write a biography? What, what would it, it, the answer is the life that was lived and the impact that that person had on another or on the world at large. That's what compels somebody to write a, write a biography. And that is what's going on with Matthew. Matthew's gospel, good news, which is what the word means, it exists because of the impact of Jesus on his life and on the region and eventually the world. It's that compelling that he would give this much time, this much money, this much effort to make sure that it got written down and distributed as widely as possible, that the truth could be known. So when you're doing that, you, have to, you, have to, you can't write everything. You have to decide what it is that you're going to put down. You, you can't just start going. Now, you probably do just start going. I mean, you just start, you just start writing. But, but there's editorial processes. There's cutting. There's good stuff that you leave on the floor. There's bad stuff that should never made it on the paper to begin with. But you're, and all the while, you're thinking there's structure, there's intent, there's strategy. There's Matthew has what he has for a reason. He's landed with what he's landed with. For a reason. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit for sure, but he's using his brain at the same time and he's basing it all on his own experiences and the interpretation of those experiences. And by the Holy Spirit, we have this biography, we have this good news of Matthew. And Matthew, unlike John and unlike Mark, begins with a genealogy, which explains to us in certain ways that, that Jesus has always been the plan that it may look like a, a, a surprise, like he kind of came out of nowhere. And who's this Jesus? But no, it's, it's always been the plan. And not just the plan for Jews, but for Gentiles as well, as illustrated both by the fact there are Gentiles in his lineage 
and that his name is a Hellenized Jewish name. Joshua is the Jewish version. Jesus is the Greek version, the Hellenized version of that name. And that name reveals his identity and his purpose. Right? He is going to be the one who saves his people from their sin, both Jews and both Gentiles alike. And then last week we started the birth narrative where you get a glimpse of people understanding from the very beginning that Jesus, by saving his people from their sins, would be a very different kind of king. He wouldn't be a political king. He wouldn't be a, a, a royal person in that respect. He certainly wouldn't be anything like Herod, the contrast there in the text. You have Magi coming from the east to worship him, from Babylon of all, of all places. Um, and, and so he'd just be a very different kind of king, primarily a disruptive one. He's going to go about it in a very difficult and disruptive way. And, uh, and it's that word disruptive that we see uh, that, that we kind of double click on. And in verses 13 to 23, it kind of opens up the depths of disruption. Okay, So that's what I want to show you today. There are two things that, that I want to show you in the text. Uh, from, from, uh, from 13 through 23, about just how disruptive Jesus was. So will you stand with me and let's read uh, Matthew 2, 13 through 23 together. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Uh, they is the Magi. And the, and, and the angel said, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and he escaped to Egypt, and he stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. In keeping with the time, he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. You may may be seated. There are two things that I want to talk about today from this text. There are 20 things I could talk about from this text. I'm going to talk about two of them. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus evoked hatred in some of the world. He didn't even say anything yet, but he evoked hatred in this world. Now, by all accounts, my mother was, was a really good cook. Okay, she was a really good cook when I was a child. She became a much better cook um, and, and even kind of became a, a foodie of sorts, if you will, 
um, in her latter years. But when I was a kid in the early 80s, okay, I want you to flash back to what it was like in the early, those of you that are old enough to do this, flash back to the early, the early 80s, what the, what, the, what the food system was like in our country. She was a pretty good cook. Now, so there's, I mean, there's still some dishes that she did that when I think of them or when I see them, like they just, like I just love them. You know, so if you put chicken breasts into a glass Pyrex dish and dump a can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup on it and, a, and, a, and an equal sized tub of sour cream and then lay over the top corned beef, sliced corned beef and stick it in the oven for an hour. Oh, my goodness. Like, it just takes me back. Like, I just I, it's very nostalgic. Like, I just I absolutely love it. Right. Oh, that's right. It's good, man. You could. It's great. There are some dishes that she just kept on serving that I absolutely hated. I mean, I hated them. And, and I'm not being dramatic. Like, I mean, I, she would put it in front of me, and I just would go into a rage. You know, like, why? And I'm thinking about my, one of my children right now. Oh, doesn't matter which one. So you could, just the words, lemon chicken. Oh, that's exactly right, right? What is this gel goop lemon on my poultry? Like, why would you do that when you could put fat, cream of mushroom soup and sour cream on it? Like, why would you do that? Like, I would sooner, when she put that into, I would sooner eat the can of green beans or the boiled squash that she also put on the plate than I would eat that lemon. I mean, it was, it just, I hate it. And she just kept once a month. So we had a book, 365 Ways to Cook Chicken. It was on the shelf in the, in the dining room. Every month, lemon chicken. You knew it was coming. And no amount of rice, white rice, with a tab of butter, pat of butter, tab of butter. Tab was the drink. With a pat of butter and sugar on top. That's how, you, that's how we had our white rice, was hot rice, butter, and sugar. Don't knock it till you try it. Uh, no amount of the goods that would, could overcome, just like, I, ha- I, I hate it. So I want you to think in your mind if there's something that you really hate, okay? Not a person. Don't do that. Oh, man. You know, like, like the Washington Redskins. I hate the Washington Just kidding. <sighs> kind of. Like, I, wa- I want you to think of something that you're not genuinely, like, you just, you have, you're loathsome, it, that you will go to great lengths to avoid it, if not end it. Okay, I've never cooked lemon chicken. I ended it. Okay, so whatever level of hatred you feel right now, take that, multiply it by a thousand. That's the what Herod felt toward Jesus. Herod felt that kind of intense hatred toward a toddler. Okay, and Matthew in this text wants us to understand the depth of this hatred. Now, he wants us to understand the depth of the sovereignty and the providence of God in it. You have him appearing twice in dreams. The timing is perfect. This fulfillment of prophecy, that's huge. Also important, you need to understand just how much hatred Herod had for Jesus, this two-year-old who is going to threaten his kingship. And so Herod does something unthinkable. Look at verse 16. Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men. He flew into a rage. 
He didn't go after the wise men. He went after Jesus. He gave orders to massacre not just one, the one. He didn't know which one. So you know what? I'm going to do all of them. Massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. Now, you and I can't really get our minds around that. That's good. But Matthew wants you to have a taste. He said, based on everything that we know about Herod from history, as terrifying as this passage is, it's very consistent and it's a very easy decision for Herod. This is par for the course, if you will. Right? Herod killed three of his own sons because they were a threat to his kingship. When Herod was himself near death, he left orders that one member of each family in his realm be killed so that there would be mourning when he had died because he knew that no one would mourn his death when he died. But so that there would be mourning on the day he died, he ordered the death of one person for every family member. They didn't carry it out. So this is nothing. It feels like a lot. Who would do that? Herod, in a heartbeat. Hatred. Now, they're not all here today, but for a church our size, we have a lot of kids. We have a disproportionate number of of children in our church, right? Um, And we're just getting started. Um, We're just getting, right, Bethany? We're just getting started. What can you say? I saw Bethany this morning. I said, are you pregnant? I had no idea. I'm just kidding. Um, When the kids, when all the kids show up on Sunday, like, we have church. Like, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's all, it's nuts, right? And, and when we don't, it's almost like there's just a little Vesper service when the kids don't come. It's just like, oh, we'll have a little Vesper, you know. So we feel the, the loss, right, when the, when the children aren't here. We feel, the, we feel the, the, their absence, right, which is a, a superficial way of of. of, of of helping you get at what it would have been like to have been a a citizen of Bethlehem and the surrounding area and for this to happen. Some 20, 30 male children, best guesses, just gone. That's the male children under two. That's a huge part of the population. It's a weight and it's a cost. There is much weeping, not just in the families who have lost, but in the whole community in the surrounding area. Jesus evoked hatred out of Herod. Now, there's also the question of, you know, why would God allow it to take place this way? Like, why does cruelty have to be associated with Christmas? But, which is a a fair question, and none of us can, none of us can answer that question. But what I, what we can do is we can go back to Genesis and read all the way to this point And if we do that, what we'll see is that God's story and purpose of salvation um, has often and frequently contained 
Ups and downs. Ups and downs. Moments of great joy, moments of great bloodshed. Moments of great joy, moments of great pain. Over and over again. And the bringing of Jesus into the world, the coming of Jesus into the world, is not any different. It's wrapped up in that story. So we don't know why, but, we, but we're, not, we, we're not surprised because Jesus is disruptive and he evoked hatred out of, of Herod. But hatred cannot thwart the purpose of God. It's one of the things Matthew wants us to see. Yes, Herod did a horrible thing. Yes, there was a terrible cost, but it will not thwart what God had sent Jesus to do. And what was it that Jesus was going to do? That's the second thing I want to tell you. He was coming with grace. He was coming with grace. Look at verses 19 through 23. This is where I take this from. Herod died. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So... He got up, took the child and his mother, entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, this is one of the kids that didn't get killed, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, I'd be terrified if I were Joseph to go to sleep at night. He's had so many dreams with God. He withdrew to the region of Galilee, and then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Look at verse 22. Where was jo- Look what Joseph was trying to do. He's trying to get to Judea. So in the dream, it's like, go to the land of Israel. The land, it's, it's a big land. It's not that big one, but it's for Joseph. It's a bit, there are lots of options, right? But when he got into the land of Judea, Joseph wanted to go to the land of Judea, but then got concerned because of the place of Archelaus, and in a dream was said, no, don't go to Judea, go to Galilee, go to Nazareth. Now, why would Joseph, he's not from Judea, not from Jerusalem, why would he try and go there? It's because that's where all the important people are. All the important people in Judaism lived in Judea. This was a sign. This was a symbol. To, this, is a, this is a sign to us that Joseph and Mary really believed what the angels had told them about Jesus. They really did believe that he was special. They really did believe that he would save their people from their sins. They actually believed Jesus' identity. They actually believed Jesus' purpose. And they sought to place him, wouldn't you do this, in the best place possible for him to achieve his identity and purpose. You want to save people from their sins through Judaism? We're going to Judea. It's the heart and center of everything there is about Judaism. But God had a completely different plan. God doesn't operate like that. God works with Nazareth. God works with Galilee. You remember in John 1, the gospel, John, Philip has met Jesus and he's super impressed with Jesus as an adult. And so he goes to his friend Nathaniel and he says, Hey, Nathaniel, I, I, I think I have met the Messiah. Which, having read Matthew 1 and 2 very carefully for the last month, is like a really big deal. Like, I think I've met. Like, it's one thing to say, I think I've met the one. I think it's her. 
you know, and it's, that's a pretty big deal. I think I've met the Messiah. I think I've met the king of the universe. And Nathaniel says, well, where's he from? What an interesting question. Why does it matter where he's from? Because if he's really important, he'll be from Judea. And what does John, what does, uh, <laughs> what does Philip say? Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, what good comes out of Nazareth? Right? What good can come from there? Now, why would he say that? Because Nazareth, Nazareth was, the, was a backwater, know-nothing town of idiots and poor people. That's what it was. So I, I grew up in one of those towns. Okay? I, I grew up in a small rural town in northwest Mississippi. And, but one of the privileges, it's a great town, I, but from the perception of, like one time, uh, we, I'll just to give you a perception about my town. I, I, um, I, I was with a group of um, Boy Scouts, and we, we spent all fall raising money, and, and for, I can't believe we did it, for $365, we were able to fly to Denver and ski for three days and come back home with our gear, $365. Sounds like an inflationary problem. But anyway, anyway, so I can't believe that's even true, but that, maybe my parents were spending money I didn't know about. But that's what I remember is raising $365. And I remember meeting people while we were out there skiing, a bunch of Boy Scouts, you know. We're not in our uniform. We're in our ski gear. We're skiing. We're like, right, where are you all from? Because we sound like we're from Mississippi. And we would start talking. They'd say, well, do you guys have paved roads there? Like that's people's perception of the northwest corner, and we'd say in some places, you know, not, not in all of them, but in some places. But, but I love growing up in a small town. So th- when I look back on it, it was awesome, And because one of the privileges is that you can ride your bike everywhere, and because everybody knows everybody, you can ride your bike anywhere, everywhere, uh, when you're eight miles all over town, three or four miles around. You can go. Just get on your bike and go all over town. And my home was basically right in the center of town leaning a little to the northeast. And my best friend, Michael, lived, on, when I was eight or nine years old, lived on the uh, far west of side of town, like two, two, three miles away. So, so to get there, I'd have to go over the railroad tracks. You know what I mean? Go over the railroad tracks, take a left uh, down Commerce, and then I get into Main Street and go right up the highway and then across the other major highway and go behind the Kmart parking lot and then Michael's neighborhood was back there. Lots of, tra- lots of traffic, um, lots of cars, lots of people. Or I could go over the railroad tracks and just keep going straight up Lee Street, cross that same highway and then back in the left, take a diagonal shot through the back of the neighborhood and get, into his, get to his house. Much, a little bit shorter when I discovered it and... Uh, and, and certainly less, less traffic. So I did that one time. I saved a ton of time, dodged way fewer cars, and I was so excited about it that I told my mother what I'd done, and she was mortified. That was her favorite word, by the way, mortified. So apparently, Lee Street, where I crossed the tracks, you know what I mean? And I just kept going straight on Lee Street. Lee Street was a notorious street in the community for crime and um, against humanity, especially uh, related to drugs and other, and other things. And so for an eight-year-old white boy to be riding his bike up and down Lee Street without a care in the world was really a terrible idea. Does that make sense? Just, so regardless of reality, maybe that was not true, if you lived on or around Lee Street, 
I grew up just assuming that you were a terrible person that I was supposed to keep away from. Make sense? This gets at the relationship that Judeans had with Galileans. This gets at the relationship that Judeans had with the relationship of people who were from Nazareth. Everybody in Judea looked down on Galileans because they were less than. Nazareth was backwoods, do-nothing, just middle of nowhere. You had no reason to go or who would, who would ever want to live there. It's the armpit of the environment. So no wonder Joseph wanted to go to Judea. He wanted Jesus to come up in the world. Joseph wanted to come up in the world, and he wanted Jesus to grow up in that better world. You can't blame him, but God chose Nazareth. God chose Galilee. God did not choose the erudite. He did not choose the learned. He did not choose the socially superior. He chose the lowly. He chose the poor. He chose the inferior people. In other words, God, Jesus, brought grace when he came. So what he's doing, he was bringing grace. And he's going to start his ministry where nobody would ever choose to start their ministry. And he's going to do it with people that nobody would ever want to be associated with. Herod right in the center, making much of everything that he could about him, making sure everybody knew everything there was about him, and everybody was terrified of him and was, could not be more glad that he had died. Jesus has a completely different kingdom. It's a kingdom of grace to the marginalized. So there are a couple of things that I want to, to ask you to do in response to this passage of Scripture today. Here's the first one. I want you to respond. Okay. So John Stott, in his book, Basic Christianity, points out that if you truly take Jesus as he's revealed in the Gospels, you can't really be indifferent or apathetic. That's not a true response. He says there are only three possible responses. You can either run away from him in fear, attack him in anger, or kneel and surrender. Jesus, he's disruptive in a provocative, in-your-face kind of way. And Herod had one response, and as we'll see through the Gospels, there'll be basically those three options right there, all the way through. And so I'm asking you to get ready. Like, you're going to have to respond. And that, when one level, that means, like, a, being a Christian or not. But on another level, that means, am I going to actually believe this and apply it to my life in a way that's meaningful and true and consistent with the gospel? It's not going to be easy. It's disruptive. The other thing I want you to consider is whether or not the, the church can exist as a as a as a minister of grace to the marginalized. This happened to me this morning. So, uh, it's happened to me all, all weekend. So, uh, we, uh, Holly and I have, we, we have uh, bought a, a, a house in Manchester, Tennessee, okay, 30 miles south of here, down 24. And uh, this old home needs a lot of work. And we, I've been, the last three or four days, I've been, well, last two weeks, but 
specifically, I've been living in the basement in this home, like in squalor. Uh, and then upstairs, the, a painter has been painting the, the walls and ceilings, and I've been redoing the kitchen with, with paint and hardware and all that kind of good stuff. Okay. So this guy, his name is Ethan, is uh, road hard, man. I mean, he's, there's hardly any skin left that's not tattooed, and he's got a great backstory. But he's been listening to, to Christian rap and R&B and praise and worship music the, for the last four days. So he, he knows the Lord, loves the Lord, and, he's, and whatnot. And, and yesterday, just yesterday, he found out that I pastor, teach, I'm a teaching pastor at, at this, I didn't tell, he didn't know this church, but at this, at this church. And this morning, he came back this morning to kind of make sure, you know, is there anything else I need to touch up? And he was, he was setting up a, a washer and dryer machine for us, he's a handyman kind of guy. And he said, man, I, he's, he said, I, I got to tell you, if I'd have known you were a preacher, I wouldn't have taken this job. And I said, well, why, why is that? He said, well, my, my, my uncle was a, is, was a pastor of so-and-so church right, right down the road here. And uh, his father abandoned him when he was a baby. He never knew his father, and his, his mother really couldn't take care of him, so he lived with another family for 20, ever since he was five years old. And he said, my brother, my uncle, excuse me, my uncle, my dad's brother. Remember his dad abandoned him? This is his brother. His brother is a pastor of a church and would not allow him to attend his church, even as a child, because of his association with his, with his dad. Who left him? Your family's too broken, Ethan, for you to be you to be in a relationship with the Lord through this church. You want to know what that does to a guy? I can tell you exactly what it did to Ethan. He didn't want to take a paint job from a preacher. And yet he knows, he knows that something is true about what's revealed about God in the Bible. And so he's held on. And held on, and God's provided and provided and provided and cared and provided over and over and over again. And even though the, <laughs> to hear Ethan say it, even though the, the police don't forget his past in that community, and even though, even though his brother, his uncle, excuse me, his uncle is what he is, he knows that something is there. And so I had the opportunity this morning to just talk about trauma, talk about his divorce, how that triggered this, and, and just, it just emphasized for me right here in the text, right, that Jesus began his ministry in Nazareth, in Galilee, with marginalized, poor people that the world wanted nothing to do with, and that there are actually churches in this world who think you've got to get your act together before you can be accepted by the Lord. Get out. That's the kind of church that needs to close. Which one are we going to be? Which one are we going to be? The kind that dictate uh, the truth of the gospel, which is we accept you based on the work and life, death of Jesus Christ, not your good works. And therefore, because he has done it, we accept you. Or are we going to be the kind of church, which is not a church at all, that says, no, we're just a bunch of socially, moral, upright, outstanding people, and you got to get there before you can be a part of who we are. There's no good news in that, gang. Jesus is only affiliated with one of those strong churches. Let's be that last one. 
Father, we are asking that by your grace we would be. We are asking that you, by your grace, would continue to make us a church that believes and proclaims the gospel to ourselves and to one another and to the world. That we demonstrate the truth of that gospel through our words, through our actions, through our choices, uh, through our resources, through our time, money, and effort, all of those things that we are a gospel-proclaiming church. To the marginalized, to the oppressed, to the people that, that this world would want nothing to do with. Because if the Bible is true and we believe that it is, what it shows us is that that kind of ministry changes the world forever. That changes the world forever. And Father, help us to respond to the truth of this gospel. The the presence of Jesus evoked hatred in Herod who felt threatened and anger He felt angry because what he treasured the most, which was his kingship and his power and his his influence, he treasured that the most. And and to have you come and, and actually be the only one worthy of all the things that he treasured made him angry and frustrated and hatred evoked out of him and he went after you as a threat. We do the same thing. You, in your grace, you enter into our lives, and initially it's awesome, but that starts to press into other things that we treasure. And so we would ask that we would be responsive to the things that you want to change in our lives that are more consistent with the gospel of grace and not the idols that we treasure. Help us to respond in humility and contriteness to those things. Thank you for your word. We pray that we'll respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.